I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Yeah, that was a good scared noise. <laughs> I practiced. You pra- How do you practice uh, scared noises? Um, hearing gunshots at your house at 1230 at night. Oh, well, that's... That'll- Make you have a scared noise real quick. Yes, it would. But, you know, since you live in the county in Alabama, maybe not a completely unpredictable type of sound. No, but it was kind of a clue close for comfort and uh, woke me up from dead sleep. Although we haven't completely ruled out it may have been one of the dogs like scratching and like hitting something against the bed because it was odd that Snuffy didn't bark. Whatever it was, it it, uh, scared the living daylights out of us last night. That's bad. (laughs) No, thank you. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, today we have with us uh, one of my favorite people, Christine Wood. Woohoo! Thanks for having me on. Christine has 16 years of experience in the veterinary medicine field, and that experience comes as both a technician and a practice manager. She has been in the management positions in a lot of different industries, but ultimately landed in a management position in veterinary medicine, and that's where she really found her true passion. And right now, Christine is completing her bachelor's degree in accounting and is going to graduate pretty soon. That's super exciting. Yeah, I'm excited to be finished with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I can sympathize. Yeah. It's been a little bit of work, but I've enjoyed it. You know, the financial side of practice management is just as important as the, we'll say, human resources management side. And something that I think a lot of veterinary clinic owners don't take advantage of enough. So I, kudos to you for going in and getting that um, degree that's going to help you a lot in an industry where a lot of people are just kind of self-taught, really. Yeah, the whole reason I went back to school is because I really do have a passion for veterinary medicine, and I really liked um, doing the practice management. So, um, and the financial area, I think, is overlooked in a lot of hospitals. It doesn't get as much attention as it as it should. And originally, I started off just in a, a business, general business focus, but uh, I really liked the accounting, so... We're going to specialize in that a little bit, and uh, I've been able to take additional management courses um, along with the business uh, business courses. That's awesome. Exciting. I know this isn't the focus of our episode, but I mean, it needs to be said, you know, if you are a veterinarian and you're using your practice manager just to handle interpersonal and client conflict, then you're underutilizing your office manager. Uh, your office manager should be the one to kind of keep the boat steered in the right direction. You know, like uh, they're the people that implement policies and change and stuff like that. They have to be able to also know things like um, what the budget is. And if you have specific goals for them, if they don't have a clear understanding of the money side, then they can't help you meet your goals very effectively. So I think that's super important. And I'm just really proud of you for, mm-hmm. for going after that. That's awesome. Ditto. Thanks, guys. The accounting part's always been kind of interesting to me just because I know nothing about how any of that's done. And hmm, Christine's going to be a good person to ask because now she's an expert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing I love about it, I had, a, I had a professor in my first accounting class that said this has accounting has nothing to do with math. You don't have to be good at math to do it. It's just about putting beans in in buckets and moving them around. And so that sounds amazing. Yeah. So when he said that, I was like, well, that's for me. I don't <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned earlier, Christine, that you had 
grown up in Washington. Did you start doing veterinary medicine while you were there? I did. So um, I grew up in Spokane, Washington. Um, it's on the east side of the state. And as an adult, I moved um, over to Seattle. And after doing um, manufacturing, I got into manufacturing for some reason right out of high school. And after doing that, I decided um, that I wanted to follow my passion, which was animals and do something with animals. So um, I actually got a job as a receptionist at a um, at a vet clinic that was really close to my previous job and really close to where I lived. So it was perfect. And um, I did reception there for just a little while and they immediately pretty much started getting me back into the, the te technical area, into the back um, office. What did you like about practice management more than teching? Um, well, I started to, to age a little bit and teching, you know, as you know, gets it's a, it's a very physical job. So I started getting, you know, a little bit tired of handling the big dogs and wrestling around on the floor with, with animals. So, um, so the practice management was just kind of a natural progression for me. Um, plus I, you know, I, I know the business pretty well. And so I was able to kind of take charge of, you know, a lot of the processes and kind of, you know, I just kind of started leading the, the back office team naturally. I was the go-to that knows how to troubleshoot stuff, and which is, you know, I think happens for a lot of technicians. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's not that I liked it better necessarily. Like I still find myself, you know, getting into talking to people about the tech tech stuff, and I I get pretty excited about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, so I still do really love it, and I can still, you know, put a catheter in a, a baby kitten any any day probably. But <laughs> and I love to poke my own animals and torture them. Um, so. <laughs> for those people who are listening to this that might not be veterinarians or veterinary staff she's joking yes. we don't enjoy torturing animals no. that is sarcasm yeah <laughs> sorry i just you could cut that part out <laughs> no it's fine it's just you know people are so funny about yeah. how anyway sometimes mm -hmm. also we have like um sometimes we will laugh in response to something that's actually really tragic Mm -hmm. And so it's probably a good time to just mention if you hear us doing that, like that's not us being jerk faces. It's just that when you deal with so much terrible stuff every day as veterinarians and really anyone in healthcare fields do, you you either have to laugh or cry and you can't cry all the time. So laughing it is. So Yeah, you develop a very dark sense of humor uh -huh. that uh, whenever you get, get mixed back in with civilians um sometimes it doesn't come across very well and you just mm -hmm. feel like we aren't sociopaths we're just um hardened and brittle mm. outside shell but soft and gooey on the inside yes <laughs> <laughs> so what were your favorite parts of uh, practice management and your least favorite parts my favorite part of practice management i think um is the people so i was really passionate about um because I used to be a team member about taking care of the team and taking care of the people that, you know, the practice is built on basically. So um, that was my favorite, favorite part. Um, it's also the most challenging part <laughs> mm. for sure is dealing with people. So dealing with clients and dealing with, um, you know, team members that maybe don't get along or some team members that get along too well. Um, you know, also can create problems. So, yeah, I'd say people for both of them. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely different personalities that uh, kind of 
don't mesh well and trying to find employees that all are happy and get along really well can be definitely a challenge. Yeah. Well, it's so unique. It's different than, you know, my previous experience um, managing production lines. You know, those are, I managed actually a really big group of people. It was um, anywhere from 75 to over 100 people um, on shifts. And I mean, talk about like the different personalities, but being sensitive to everyone's needs too. So I did, you know, dealing with, um, you know, personal conflict between people that aren't literally just yelling and screaming at each other on the line is different than, you know, the subtle aggressions that you get in a veterinary clinic where people are having to work elbow to elbow. And they, to be honest, I never saw a whole lot of um, screaming matches in the vet clinic. It's people, you know, creating drama and not addressing issues. So that's probably one of the biggest things is people just not addressing the problem as it happens with the person next to them. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. And, you know, so I will say I unfortunately have seen screaming matches and stuff in veterinary hospitals. It has been fewer, though. You're right. Absolutely. I think the thing that tends to drive the drama bus is little bitty snide comments, Mm -hmm. looks, things like that. And if you combine that with people who are in a highly emotional type of field, highly stressful circumstances, working a lot probably more than we should then it's it's a lot easier to take those things personally than you know if you're i don't know yeah you know if you didn't have all those other stressors you might be like meh they're just probably having a bad day but then it becomes some sort of huge personal deal let's maybe talk about some specific examples and in going through this we're not meaning to assign blame or place labels but To some degree, labeling is helpful in identifying problem behaviors. So we're going to go through and talk about some of the more common um, types of issues that you're going to see and maybe how to handle each one, why we might be seeing those behaviors and how to handle it. The first type that we sort of identified was sort of the click groups or drama clubs that people will form. And this generally involves potentially even just one person who kind of incites the drama and then maybe a group of people who feed off of it. And this kind of click dynamic can be really disruptive, especially when you have brand new team members. So, Christine, do you think it's ever okay to have close relationships or close friendships in the same office? I do. I think that, um, I think that it can be done. So I've had, um, plenty of good friends that I've worked with. Um, I've developed, you know, friendships at work and it works. It actually makes work more enjoyable if you've got a a buddy, you know, that you're kind of in the trenches with. So I think it um, contributes to morale. I think it helps morale. You have to have an awareness about, you know, if you're hanging out with one person a lot, you know, how does that affect the people around you? Or if you start seeing people or, you know, feeling a vibe coming off of your coworkers that, you know, hey, you guys are hanging around too much, uh, you know, too buddy-buddy at work, then you need to, you know, take a step back and include other people. So you just take it, take it down a notch, include other people, be nice to everybody, trying to be, try to be inclusive. Um, The friends that I've made at um, veterinary hospitals and uh, at previous jobs, we've always done that, tried to invite more people out you know, after work or, you know, fill them in on the, on the inside joke that we're having. 
So definitely, I think that it can be done. Um, it, it more, I think, it has to do with the individual personality of the people. If they're kind of mean people separately, <laughs> then when you, uh-huh. when you get them together, they're going to be a, they're going to form this clique or a drama club, like you're talking about. Um, so that you can address that with the individuals. Yeah, yeah, that can kind of be an easy thing to fall into. I think if you have like, say, you have one particular employee that maybe. Um, isn't quite getting it, uh, instead of kind of working with them, it's a lot easier to put them down. And that's, that's a trap I see happening a lot. And I mean, any of these, uh, behaviors, I mean, I can say I definitely have had, um, I have done whether I want to (laughs) admit it really or not, uh, just over the years in different environments will bring certain things out of a person. But especially if you have like a group of people that you want to be a part of and if they're participating in, you know, oh, so and so they're they're just not they're not getting it. They're they're making mistakes and they're saying things that make no sense. And and they're trying to include you in that. It's real easy to fall into that trap so that you feel like you're included into that group. And before you know it, you're saying things that you shouldn't be saying, like agreeing with them. And they're like, oh, great. Now I'm a mean girl. Uh-huh. Not cool, but it's kind of an example of how that can happen. Yeah. Another group that I, I've been familiar with is the person that does the bare minimum. You know, they're doing just enough to stay employed, just kind of stay a little bit out of trouble. They're just not 100% there. You know, they don't really do anything towards growing as an employee. You know, they're not really the person you go to for things. They're probably the person, the last person that you would call if you needed to trade a shift with because they're just not interested in being really a team player. And I don't know, what are your thoughts about those type of employees? These are my least favorite (laughs) (laughs) because they go against the grain of everything, you know, about me. So I've, I've got kind of a motor on me. I've always been kind of a go-getter, especially in vet practice. Um, I've, you know, I feel like that um, I try and do things quickly and I'm always looking out and trying to do more. So um, especially to help my fellow teammates. So to make, you know, to make things just run smoother. So the bare minimum employee, you know, they're, they're difficult. They're very frustrating. And I would say that sometimes that there's a place for them in the clinic. You know, if you've got somebody that's really good at a couple of, th- you know, at, a, at, at, at their job, at most things, you know, there's a place maybe for having having one person like that. You can't have more than one, though. Like, no, <laughs> no, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not yeah. not helpful. Um, but I do try to to work with those people and try and find what motivates them. Maybe it's something that doesn't motivate anybody else, or it's something that that's we haven't thought of that motivate. You know, it's different than me. They they don't find their same motivation as as I do. So I try and, you know, first talk to those people, listen, try and figure out what, um, you know, what their needs are and what motivates them. If it, if vet med is not their thing, then I'll encourage them to move on. Like, I've been honest with people about that. Um, I've been honest with coworkers about that. I had one coworker that was trying to, <laughs> trying to do two jobs and trying to, trying to learn how she was going to school for something else. And she also wanted to be a great technician and she just couldn't give her all to it. Like she would just drop the ball on, on all sorts of things. And I just bluntly had to tell her, you know, you, 
can't do it all. You have to have, to me, you have to have your heart in veterinary medicine, like your whole heart in it. It's just that kind of, if you're going to go through all the emotional crap that we have to go through in <laughs> in veterinary yeah. medicine, you might as well have your whole heart in it. Otherwise, why are you doing it? So, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. It requires your full attention, that is for sure. It's not like an... Um, I mean, and I'm not trying to disparage people that have office jobs, but it's not like an office job where you make one little mistake. It might cost some money or it might cost, you know, uh, some the presentation didn't go right or some other little thing that um, when I say little thing to them, it might be huge. But it it's not the same as like something dying. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Which is the you know, we literally have to deal with that possibility with every single decision that we make, every time we fill a prescription, every time we think about like how sick is this animal really, the stakes I agree are just way higher than the average job, and so you got to be all in to do this job. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, the pay isn't good enough to be doing this if your heart is somewhere else. So I don't <laughs> no. understand that. No. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> no. You speak the truth. <laughs> Literally, like. <laughs> Any fast food job pays better than most of the entry level. I'm serious. Mm-hmm. I mean, Clearly. it doesn't need to be that way. But where we live, yeah. Um, any entry level position at any type of retail establishment or anything that requires zero experience pays higher than an experienced, um, you know, non qualified uh, assistant. I, it does. So, yeah. like, it shouldn't be that way, but that's the way it is. So, like, we, you know. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Okay, sidebar. <laughs> sorry, sidebar. One thing that I do think is important to remember about the do the bare minimum employee is that, well, first of all, that it, it might be that they started out some other way and got disenfranchised and became the do the bare minimum employee. So, like, we, we need to keep that in mind. But also, if an employee is going through hard times uh, with outside pressures, maybe they have new family members that maybe they've um, they've maybe had a baby. They've maybe adopted. They've maybe, maybe they are caring for elderly parents um, that aren't doing well. Um, anytime we have a, a especially an employee that maybe has been really good in the past and is going through a rough time, we want to keep that in mind. But I, I think where JJ, what, what you're thinking about here is kind of the do the bare minimum all the time as a rule type of employee. Am mm-hmm. I getting that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So then one thing there is, are they being challenged by their work appropriately? Are we giving them the opportunity to have some um, creative input to take initiative and to advance themselves? And if not, it might be that structural systematic changes within the organization might be needed to allow employees to, to be assertive and to find the thing that they really enjoy. And one example that I have is um, kind of a chronic do the bare minimum employee that I know of that ended up really, really liking a certain aspect of um, practice. And I don't, you know, it's a personal relationship, so I don't want to get too specific, but let's just say that, that keeping the area in the front of the clinic neat, clean and organized with an inventory was the thing that they excelled at it, in this specific example. It wasn't, but let's just say it was that when you allowed them to say like, you know, what really bugs me about the clinic 
this is unorganized. I don't like it. And actually it distracts me. Like it frustrates me from being able to do a good job. Okay. How would you fix it? And then they're like, all of a sudden now they got five color coded lists and they're like, and damn, the front has never looked better. And like people are buying more product because it doesn't look like a disorganized mess, you know? So sometimes finding the places that those employees really shine and put them in the right position is all it takes to take a do bare minimum employee up to a man. They're doing pretty good for themselves. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, I mean, have you guys seen that kind of thing or what do you think about that? I agree. I, mm-hmm. I think finding uh, their, their niche, you know, something that they are passionate about that's for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of, that's part of like listening to what their needs are and what, what motivates them. And you can kind of direct them towards exploring other options you know, and helping them. Sometimes they don't even know what they, what they want, you know, until they start hearing some, some options thrown out there for them. So that's always um, rewarding to help people kind of find that, find their happy place there. To bring up an earlier topic we were talking about with the, the clicky mean girl types, a lot of times the bare minimum employee tends to be the, their victim just because they're frustrated with them Mm -hmm. and there can be bullying, which is not going to motivate said employee. So um, as a practice manager, how would you go about handling that sort of thing? (laughs) How about we just hit you with a really complex combo? Boom, right off the bat. What are you going to do? Let's go. Uh, Okay. So I'm I'm dealing with two different problems here, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm dealing with mean girls and a bare minimum employee. Yes. Yeah. Who is their is their victim and it's maybe making the bare minimum employee worse at being minimum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now you're they're both coming to you. One's upset because they're being ostracized and constantly uh crapped on and the others feel like they're justified in their behavior because they feel like the other person's not pulling their weight. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Super common. Yeah. It yeah. is very common. And um I've had some of these go well and some some not. Uh so I think what is important is listening to both sides. So that's something that I always do. I try and just listen, ask questions, understand where each person is coming from, um, and then steering them towards, you know, sometimes I have to lay down ground rule, ground rules. You know, this this is not acceptable behavior as far as like the mean mean girls or mean person. Um, you You can't treat another employee like this no matter how frustrated you are with them. So you definitely have to, um, you know, protect your other employee. We're all human. Um, and gosh, and and no one is above this behavior either. I mean, um, it's not our intention in recording this podcast to be like, look at us, the paragons of great clinic behavior or whatever. Like we're just people. We're just people. And we're, everybody's got to learn and try. I have definitely been a mean girl and yeah, not realized yeah. it until I came out on the other side of it. And it was like, oh, oh, cringe. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Cringe. Yeah. It's Absolutely. really hard to um, see what you're doing, you know, while you're in it. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Get a little self-righteous. Yeah. yeah. To any of people that I've ever worked with, I apologize <laughs> if I have been a terrible coworker because <laughs> I try not to be, but it has happened. As far as dealing with those two sets of people, it's, um, you know, I'll trying to work on the the 
the low performers behavior is kind of low on my list, you know, at that point, um, I'll get there, but I really want to try and stop the conflict from happening because usually in these situations, there's like daily, you know, bad things going on and it's affecting the rest of the team. So I'm Mm. trying to get them to stop bickering or being mean or fighting or being ugly at work. So I'm trying to get them to see, put themselves in the other person's shoes, trying to, you know, get them to um, give the other person kind of the benefit of the doubt. You know, they're not doing this as an affront to you. They're not doing this to, they're not behaving this way to intentionally make you mad or irritate you. So that's something that people forget. Sometimes they take, start taking things really personally and, uh, and it's often is not about you. (laughs) Very often. It's not about you. I would say it's almost never really about you. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are, um, people are so bad in general at, uh, (laughs) directing the, um, the emotions that they feel towards the correct, um, people uh-huh. it, it might be something that you don't even you're not even aware of yeah like a home situation mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and then they're just it yeah Agreed. that cumulative stress just wears away at your ability to take a deep breath and count to 10 and go forward yeah yeah so sometimes we'll have these um the two parties uh meet and try and work it out um that's always on their terms so i never ever want to put two people in a room uh, without their permission, they all, they both like every party has to be on board with trying to meet together and work it out. Otherwise, oh boy, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the one person is going to feel like they walked into a trap right. if they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk about um, how that sort of a meeting should go as far as mediating, because it shouldn't be a situation where you put two people in a room and let them quote hash it out. That's almost never going to work No. how can we mediate these situations so that we have uh, a positive outcome i do it with some prep work so i try and prepare each side before we even meet on you know what our goals are Mm. and kind of how i i think the meeting should go and that i'm there to help them work it out and come up with a a solution that everybody's happy with so that's that's what i like to do is just the, the prep work I think is really important. Um, and then when they go in, they're kind of more prepared. Hopefully they're not as emotional as they have been. Sometimes it does get still emotional Yeah. when people start talking to each other face to face. It's, it's hard, but usually we can get, you know, some sort of understanding. So that's mainly what it, it, it comes down to is just understanding where the other people are coming from, what their other points of view are and that they're not, you know, and maybe there's some concessions. Okay, well, I'll try and do this better or I'll try and do that differently. But usually we can work it out. And sometimes yeah. um, sometimes they don't want me, you know, they don't want a manager to help. Sometimes they want to try and work it out on their own. And I'm totally fine with that too. Yeah. If it's a, like a willingness to do it yes. both. Yeah, but you would never want to mandate that two people meet in a room and then sit there with them and be completely silent. No. I would never That's not going to work out. Yeah, and I don't ever mandate them work just work it out on your own either. Like sometimes I will. There's, you know, baby steps, okay? But if you're trying yeah. to to coach an employee and they're actually making some progress in some areas like this, then sometimes you do want to give them a little nudge. Okay, I think you're ready to handle this on your own. Why don't you go ahead and give it a shot? Are you okay with that? And usually by that time, they're like, yeah, let me try it. 
let me do it. Let me see if I can handle this on my own. And I'm like, great. Yeah. Um, and they know that I'm still there for them if they need me. How much of that process, Christine, involves the individual people involved taking a step back and saying, what is, what am I trying to get out of this situation? Or what, instead of complaining, what specific changes can I request that other people make? Yeah. And what changes am I prepared to make? Because the only people that you can control really are yourself, right? right? So how much does that sort of prep play into um, the success or failure of that sort of a, of a talk? Yeah, that's a pretty big part is, um, is having them take a look at themselves too and uh, how they're reacting to it and if they can the, change anything. And, you know, talking about what kind of outcome they want, you know, do you want to continue working here? <laughs> That could be an outcome. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Like, is that, is your goal to continue to work yeah. here? Yeah. Okay. So, if so, then uh, how that sometimes will dictate how motivated they are to uh, to resolve the problem. So, it's right. It's what their expectations are and what is motivating them to work it out or not work it out. So, and that's that's really good to know before you even try to do a mediated meeting. Christine, shouldn't we just draw a hard line in the sand? And slam our book down on the table and say, God damn it, everybody get the fuck along right now or else I'm going to rant and rave and yell at all of you and make your life hell. So you better just learn how to get along because we're adults. Shouldn't that be how we deal with stuff instead of coddling all these snowflake millennials? (laughs) Oh, snap. Okay, clearly that is sarcastic, but... (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, that would, uh, if that worked, that would be the easy way to go, huh? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't work. So. Yeah, if it worked, it would have worked a while ago, yeah. and not like uh, we wouldn't still be having this problem. I guess no. mm-hmm. you do that, and people just work in fear, and that's not that's not a good place to work. Because definitely, there's um, there's some people that take that tactic. They don't, <laughs> right? They don't want to deal with the problems. Lots of people, Stop yeah. Stop talking to me. Deal with it on your own. Work it out you know, work yeah. it out. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and I'll be honest, like, um, my, so I was raised, um, my dad was a Vietnam veteran and he was a dentist and, you know, very serious, uh, medical professional. And he liked to run a tight ship. And my, one of my first jobs was working at his office. And, um, you know, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes he had that type of approach to things and, um, you know, didn't always work out the best. So when I or when I went from being a veterinary student into being a veterinarian and got into like a quote grown up workplace for the first time and and wasn't just working side jobs like while I was in school, um, I uh, that is the kind of attitude that I had because that's where I was raised. Like, well, goddamn, like you just what do you mean? What do you mean? No, like you. You know, like uh, the boss just told you to do something and you're what? Like, you can't say no. What are you talking about? You can't. I, I used to have a very like old timey sort of philosophy about it. Um, and I used to f- uh, because of part of the way that I was raised in that ethic that I was raised with um, in a lot of the ways that I was raised were very good. This is not an indictment of, you know, my upbringing. It just is a generational difference. And it's not the 1950s anymore. So, um, anyway, it took a while for me to come around to being, to having like a little bit of a softer approach. But now that I have, 
man, it has served me a lot better than trying to draw a hard line. Mm-hmm. Maybe especially being a woman mm-hmm. and in a field with a lot of women, because I think especially in the Southeast, men can kind of get away with that type of behavior. And people are kind of like, yes, sir, or whatever, you know, does it resolve the problem? No, you know, it doesn't. But like it kind of at least puts a surface bandaid on it. But also just as being a woman in the profession, if you try to be very authoritarian, like that does not come off. okay. Um, so there's definitely some gender role dynamics at play there, too. But like, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Drawing the super old fashioned hard line is not helpful at all. And also generalizing about millennials, not helpful at all. Mm-mm. Also, let's point out that millennials are a lot older than a lot of y'all think. Okay. I am 37 years old. I haven't been on spring break in over 20 years. So let's everyone just calm down. You're thinking about people that are way, way, way younger than me in a different generation. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Can I go back to um, yeah. one thing I just had a thought about with, um, yeah. you know, trying to get people to understand each other trying to point out their similarities rather than having them focus on their differences I think can be really helpful and one similarity that we have and that um, I have been a big proponent of and and I try to be very um, encouraging and supportive and I'm very proud that I've been able to work with so many um, talented women in the veterinary profession and so I try to you know I think that we forget that this is a, a really mostly female profession yeah. and we should be proud of that. And we should be lifting each other up instead of trying to be catty and pick at each other's, you know, differences and, um, and flaws. We all have flaws, yeah. right? So, uh, so that's one thing I think that we don't talk about enough too. Right. Absolutely. And it's hard, um, partially because of the way that women are conditioned to, always be hyper competitive and things like that. And Mm -hmm. I find it really unfortunate still that a lot of young people say things like, well, I wouldn't ever want to have a female boss in. I know Christine just made like a what, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, but I mean, people say that people say that people say, oh, you know how much drama women bring to a situation. And I'm like, have you ever worked with men? Because holy mm. monkeys, like <laughs> one of the biggest, most dramatic people I've ever worked with was a guy. So they like, some gossiping <laughs> fools too. They man. are. Oh my gosh. They, they are like, so I mean, you want to talk about some hens, the roosters. <laughs> you know, yeah, I agree. They do like um, a story, don't they? Oh, yes. Yeah. And they, I mean, it will take no time and the entire city will know about it. Yeah. Not just in the clinic. <laughs> <laughs> One of the the positive interactions I've had in the past was with a, an employee that was I kind of viewed as a do the bare minimum type of employee. And um over years and years um I've come to view this person as a real asset, you know, and so then that's just a that's just a testament to how people can change over time. Mm-hmm. But um she and I haven't always seen eye to eye about a lot of things. And she's a lot younger than I am. But one of the things that I uh, that really helped me change kind of my attitude also was that one time she said to me, Dr. Greider, I am very fortunate to work around so many strong women leaders. And I was like, oh, 
because I'd never thought before that someone might even view me that way. And so then that actually helped change a lot of the things that I do. Now, from that point on, it's much easier for me to say, do I need to check myself here? And like, do I need to act different? Do I, what sort of example before I answer this question, before I make this correction, before I get angry and frustrated about this, what sort of example would be the best one for me to set? And I'm no one's perfect. And I certainly am not, but I think that's a good reminder. Like if you are in a senior position, people are looking at you for how to act. And if how you act is you're going to come in and pitch a fit, you're going to come in and throw things you're going to come in and go on a rampage and yell at a bunch of people and have everybody cowering in the back like that's your employees will then display that behavior. And so, like, if you have a person who is being a problem employee in, in doing things like acting out, yelling, slamming things, throwing things, and you have a boss that also does that, you got to fix the boss first. <laughs> then you can fix the employee. Because the employee is seeing that modeled behavior and people are just sophisticated monkeys, okay? Mm-hmm. We model <laughs> behavior that we see. Anyway, sorry. Yes. <laughs> a little bit of a sidebar. 1,000% agree with you. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things I think is super important in management of any type of workplace conflict with really any type of problem employee is the importance of direct communication and being assertive. Instead of making passive-aggressive comments or communicating in a passive aggressive way what has been your experience with that how how do you think that plays into these office dynamics in veteran medicine i have seen more introverts than in any other profession that i've been in and so for introverts it can be really hard to be assertive and to have that direct communication um that's a a lot easier for even shy extroverts to just uh kind of keep it Uh, to themselves. And that's when we start getting the microaggressions or some passive aggressive behavior. This is very coachable. It it takes a little bit longer to see sometimes. You don't always see it right away. So things can get, you know, worse before they get better. But um, in, in my experience, I think that it's been very coachable. Some techniques that I talked about before was, you know, coaching that employee just one-on-one for a while about the problems that they're having with the other people and trying to get them to make um, small steps in communicating on their own with them. Sometimes it does start with a mediation um, meeting, so talking with both the employees at the same time, and that sometimes will give the employee kind of a little bit more um, confidence to deal with those issues on their own as they arise instead of letting them sink in and you know, fester and and get at them. I agree with you that introverts make up, I would say, probably the majority of veterinary employees. I don't have any studies to back that at all, but that's just been my experience. Introverted just means that you tend to be sort of drained by interaction with people and that you need quiet time to recharge. And there can be shy and outgoing introverts, which an outgoing introvert is sometimes hard for people to kind of wrap their brain around. But mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I agree. I think that introverts often have trouble um, because they are often really exhausted by just working a 10 hour shift, which is like the, cla- you know, most places you go, you're, you're working a 10 hour shift. Mm-hmm. So um, you've already worked a 10 hour shift. You've had to interact with people on the phone. 
people at the front desk, people in rooms, mm-hmm. coworkers, the boss. Like you've had to already do all of that. And then the idea of having to be like, I've got to interact about this stressful thing that happened. A lot of times I think it is easy to be like, what if I just stuff it down in there and not ever address it? Yeah. And then it, you're right. It does come out as passive aggressive communication later down the road. Even if we try not to, even if we say, well, I let that go a long time ago. I really think if you, unless it truly is a very minor thing, if you don't directly address it, it festers. Mm -hmm. Um, People live in their own world and will perceive slights that you never intended. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just, gosh, just being direct is just so much better. But it takes a lot of practice, and I've had, like, a crap ton of years of therapy to be able to figure out how to do it, and I'm still not perfect at it. But, like, what I've learned is the second I feel that little feeling of, like, did I do something that just maybe made them feel uncomfortable? Or that little, what they did made me feel upset, kind of. Instead of stuffing it down, now my go-to thing is I reach out and I say, hey, this is going to sound insane. but it. 12.01 p.m. yesterday, I said the this word to you, and, and now I've been thinking about it, and I feel like that you might have taken it in a different way than I intended, and I wanted to reach out and make sure that you weren't upset about what I said. You know, the vast majority of the time, people are like, I don't even fucking remember that, but uh-huh. <laughs> occasionally, mm. people are like, it did actually bother me, and then that's allowed us to move on and kind of talk about kind of reach an understanding and even if you're on then opposite sides of an issue it still brings you together and you still end up having a better relationship where you can just like talk plainly and i think the same is true um on the flip side maybe it's not something that you said that you're like man i wonder i hope that wasn't misinterpreted but something someone else does does that bothers you it's uncomfortable and just to say hey I need to have a conversation with you that might be a little bit uncomfortable. Is it okay if I'm very direct? And most people say, yeah, because most people like to think of themselves as like, I got this. I can handle it. You know, I've ha- I've never had anyone say, no, don't be direct. They're all like, yeah, you can be direct with me. Let's go. And then I'm like, when you X, Y, Z, I felt X, Y, Z. And I want to talk about that some more. And then again, like it's not always 100% comfortable. And maybe you don't always like come to a firm agreement, but at least it's addressed. It's not like floating out there or whatever. For me, that's my new favorite way of doing crap. And like, whereas I thought, I'm just going to start so much drama by doing this. I was wrong. It actually prevents drama. Mm -hmm. It's a drama preventative. Yeah, I have a a good example of how I handled that sort of situation the incorrect way. Okay. Um, there was lots of talk about how this particular employee would handle things that really annoyed a lot of people, uh, and nobody said anything to her about it. Some people had gone to management about it and, you know, was met with, well, this you're just being nitpicky. It's not a big deal. But instead of addressing with her personally, I just was like, okay, it's just her. And then it started to add up and fester just like, you know, we were saying it would till it got to a point where it was something small, but I exploded at her very inappropriately in the middle of the hallway where Mm. there's client rooms Mm -mm. and totally 
incorrect way of handling it. And I didn't realize like how I had been holding on to just really severe animosity and just really almost like I just can't stand this person, but I can't change her. I can only change how I react to her. So that's what I tried to do moving forward. And it wasn't always easy, but it was definitely easier than going home every day, just feeling like, you know, I want to strangle this person. Right. I think you bring up a good point there of, you know, the fact that you can't change other people and that the only thing that you can change or control is how you react. Sometimes the concerns or complaints that people will bring to management make me sometimes want to like laugh and cry at the same time because I'm like, you're mad because the person looked at you funny three days ago. Like, I can't even flip mm-hmm. it. I can't deal with this right now. I have got too much shit going on. Like, <laughs> you're going to have to grow up and be an adult person. Because that's what my dad would be like. Uh, Walk your ass right back out of my office. Like, I'm not <laughs> dealing with this crap mm-hmm. right now. You're going to have to handle it like an adult. Um, But those people might not have the tools to be able to handle it, right? So then that's when we have to talk about, like, okay, you know, I know that XYZ behavior made you upset, but if it's not an egregious thing, and in our field, if it's not harming a patient and it gets the job done, we can't ask everybody to change just so you feel the maximum level of comfort. To some degree, you have to change your ability to tolerate other people's stuff. And I don't know, you know, that might be different for every person, but to look and say, like, okay, what aspect of it bothers you the most? and um, can you maybe think of reasons why it is actually a good thing to do, especially if it's something minimal, mm-hmm. you know, if someone looks at you funny, like if you're going to have a breakdown every time someone looks at you funny, it's going to be a miserable know, life. <laughs> it is. It is. And that, that doesn't mean you stuff it down and don't talk about it. That means maybe we need to get into some therapy. Like maybe we need to go see a counselor and say, Man, I'm having trouble dealing with basic facts of everyday life, such as people giving me a funny look. Mm -hmm. Um, It's creating so much anxiety and stress that I'm, you know, emotional about it. I can't sleep. It's creating work problems. You know, let's dig through and get to the root of that cause. Sometimes a management at a veterinary practice, well, I can say almost 100% of the time, management at a veterinary practice is not qualified to dig into super deep personal shit. So, like... Mm -hmm. Sometimes the the answer might be that we need to work on ourselves quite a bit. Um, and that can be hard for people to do or admit, I think. Yeah, it's hard for people to internalize uh, their surroundings, what's going on around them. They want to make it everybody else's problem or, you know, these things are happening to me. It's all external, but um, looking inside yourself. People do stuff to me, mm-hmm. but I, I'm just a victim. I don't have any. Mm-hmm. Right. So we had talked briefly earlier about the kind of the do every uh, thing employee, the the martyrs, as I like to call them. This is an employee that is a doer that kind of does everything themselves in a way. Mm-hmm. And okay. they might be one of those employees where, um, say, for instance, if there is like a, an absence of uh, leadership in an area, people will, the, the people who are kind of natural leaders will step into that area and try to do things and lead things, but without guidance, it might not be the most efficient way or it might be the not the way that management would want it to happen. Yeah. Um, and if they are ridiculed for that or punished for that, then they're going to develop some animosity towards management. 
really quickly. When I think about the quote, do everything employee, I think about kind of maybe two different umbrella Mm -hmm. situations. The, The first umbrella would be the type of employee who's kind of the weathered veteran tech. She's been there 35 years, you know, like (laughs) she knows how every part of the clinic runs because she does it all. Mm -hmm. She doesn't um, share that information with everybody though, um, because she wants it done right. And she's seen over time that the only person who does it right is her. And so uh, this is the type of employee that uh, people keep on for years and years, even if maybe they create multiple conflicts with other staff members Maybe they're super rude to clients. Maybe they're not the best face of the business, but there's a perception that the business, quote, can't function without them. Mm-hmm. And then kind of the other umbrella that I think of is um, the type, JJ, that you were just mentioning, where this is a go-getter type of employee. They're kind of the opposite of the do the bare minimum. They're always the go above and beyond, constantly seeking approval from other people. And because of that, they tend to say, like, this is a problem. I'm going to step in and fill that role. This is a problem. I'm going to step in and fill that role. And they end up, like, doing a bunch of other stuff that's outside of the purview of their job. And originally, maybe they're even excited to do it. But over time, if leadership, if management doesn't step in and say, thank you for uh, addressing this issue, here is our plan for us to address it. And we're going to kind of take that off your shoulders a little bit. Mm-hmm. Then um, they become resentful. So they're filling these void voids in leadership again and again. Um, they're not getting any extra pay. They're not getting praise. They're not getting congr- the congratulations. That is the reason that they're kind of doing this anyway. Then they become resentful. They burn out. They change hospitals and the cycle starts again, or they burn out and they become the do bare minimum employee. You know, mm-hmm. people f- might think of the type of uh, employee that do everything employee as good, but Christine, why is this a problem? Why is it a problem to to be the person that does everything? Yeah, for some of the reasons that that you said, if they are a, a great employee, which it sounds like they've got kind of a motor and um, you know they're stepping up but they're taking on too much and they can burn out. So you want to, you want to keep that employee and try and channel that energy for good. (laughs) So (laughs) you can, um, you know, focus on their strengths and hopefully keep them around, not have them burn out. One thing about the been there forever employee that really is, um, you know, top down management with that, you know, you have to have your team cross-trained. You can't have just one person that knows how to do everything. That's not going to work. That never works. So, But many people do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a relief vet, I see it every day. I mean, I go to lots of different places and I can't even tell you how many times I hear the words, well, we'll have to wait till Wednesday to make an estimate because that's when the person who does estimates is going to be here. Oh, and I'm like, gosh, what? What? <laughs> Yeah, that is such a problem for the practice. It's so yeah, or yeah, or like, well, we can't schedule a surgery for this day because only one person knows how to run anesthesia for you. And I'm like, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) That's not going to work. That hurts my ears, Doctor Greider. I know. I'm so sorry, but I'm I'm just telling you the reality of of practice day to day. I I think that I've seen a a reliable cross section of practices in the southeast. Yeah. 
to be able to tell you that um, that cross training is not common, but it needs to be. Yeah. Certainly, mm-hmm. I think people do have their niches that they fit into, and certainly people are sometimes people are less skilled in an area. We don't want to by cross training. We don't mean throw someone into monitoring anesthesia that has no idea what they're doing. Like, no, let's not do that. But how about we employ a consistent level of quality people that can all function as, you know, as a team together, I think would be a better goal. Absolutely. (laughs) Why is perfectionism bad? It's not bad. Yes, Yes, it it is. is. It's bad. It's terrible. Oh, yeah. Says the three perfectionists. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Like, yeah. Um, I used to think that being a perfectionist was like a good quality trait that I had. Um, and then I grew up yeah. going through professional school and um, the process of completing undergraduate coursework and competing to get those vet school spots and everything. Like it selects for perfectionism. Like in some ways your perfectionism is rewarded, but man, it's terrible for your mental health and terrible for your interpersonal relationships. But no one ever told me that yeah. until I went to uh, my latest therapist who was like, uh, we got to fix this. <laughs> this is a problem that you have and it's it's pretty bad and we got to we got to erase it. For sure. I see that it um, it's, can slow you down and cause a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Un- undo yeah. anxiety. Does it ever. Anxiety and perfectionism are kind of like best friends. Mm-hmm. I find it strange that like. I don't know. I feel like in some areas of my life, I'm not quite a perfectionist, but I find work, I guess because it's kind of followed by a healthy dose of fear that if I make a mistake, it it could mean an animal's life and it could mean my job. It could mean the practice staying open because if I make a mistake that's big enough that draws the ire of the right person who decides to sue the clinic. So all those things are like, you know, that's the anxiety talking. But uh, I do find that, like, I want to dot every I across every T. If there's a spot for something to fill that information in, I'm doing it. If I speak to anybody, I'm putting a note in the computer. Just do all the things so that, you know, even if I were to make a mistake, at least I have a paper trail I can go back and find. Okay, I did A, B, and C, but I didn't do D. Okay, I got I to gotta go call somebody and make sure that D happens. Even though I dropped the ball and didn't do it, I'm going to make sure it happens because I've made a list or something to that effect. I don't know if y'all have any of those experiences, but that's that's my day at work. Yeah, I struggle and I have for a long time with perfectionism and I had to force myself, you know, you have to force yourself to think outside of that and to understand that it's not going to be the end of the world if you didn't get this perfectly right. Um, it's still stings a little bit okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah it's really come out for me as a challenge in school because <laughs> you know <laughs> that first a feels pretty good and then i'm like mm-hmm. all right i got this and then the next one and the next one and then i'm like okay i can't ever get a b now so it's it's re- you build your own standards too and you live in your own reality and um it can be it can be really challenging i've had to with the this last semester and dealing with COVID, of course, that, you know, everything's changed this year. Oh, yeah. You really have to go with the flow. You could, There's no room to, you know, hang out in perfection world. One of the scenarios I wonder about is if, if you're working at a clinic that's sort of like a fear of the management sort of culture, 
Uh, if you have employees that say they have a conflict, but they're afraid to approach management, so all they do is talk about it within the clinic, how would you go about changing that, per se? Because that's a little, that was one that came up in my head that was a little difficult. If they're afraid to talk to management and I'm the management, then I've got to <laughs> look internally, <laughs> don't I? So yeah. that's, uh, that's definitely an in, a management problem. You know, you don't want your your employees to be afraid to bring you problems. So mm-hmm. that's something that you really need to fix there. And then you can address the gossiping. But for, you know, a kind of an open door place that values communication, that's a different story. You know, you, you pe- people are gossiping for, I don't know what reasons, but what, what are things that motivate employees to gossip with each other instead of handling things directly? I guess they're afraid. Yeah, that could be. Um, I also find that like, some people have a difficulty in separating gossip and venting. Um, yeah. Say that, you know, you had a a client that was particularly difficult. You come back and share that with the other employees. Well, that's not really gossiping per se, but as the story spreads throughout the clinic, it's like a game of telephone where you might have a client that was just a little all right. All of a sudden now the entire clinic thinks that this client is like, I don't ever want to go into an exam room with them because they're going to bite my head off. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how simple venting can turn into gossiping. And that happens a whole lot, especially when you have some dramatic personalities that embellish a little bit and then it becomes a whole new can of worms. Yeah, it's a it's a fine line. We all kind of need to vent. And I know I, I vent when I'm at work. I, it's it's a, I have to keep it a little bit more discreet as a manager, but um, but it happens. You have to get that out somewhere, but in a constructive way. So you just have to be careful about that. And as management, you, so I'm c- pretty hands-on manager. I like to to walk around, you know, see what's going on during the day and try and if I start seeing that or he- I hear the story, it usually comes to me in some way, you know, hopefully I can kind of put a stop to that if it's getting real ugly, you know, you know, make sure and remind people maybe that person just had a bad day. You know, we don't need to continue talking about it. So mm-hmm. just having hands-on management, I think, is really important. The gossiping um, topic is one of the things that does frustrate me a lot as the veterinarian because most veterinarians, I think, kind of start the day a little bit after maybe the technical staff, you know. And so sometimes by the time I arrive, some item of gossip is like flooded the clinic and everybody's talking about it and everything. And especially if it's like a stressful thing, like, did you hear that this one went to the ER that you saw on Friday, you know, and there's like an implication, maybe you didn't handle it right, you know, or whatever like that, you know? And so it's just like, um, as the veterinarian, when you like walk in and you hear that type of example of like, the first thing before I've even put my food in the refrigerator for the for the morning or set my bags down, it's like this one went to the ER. Here's the stuff. The owner is already on the phone and they're mad. Where I'm just like, okay, <laughs> okay, I can't deal with that. Like first thing in the morning makes me super grumpy. And so this is one that I have way less patience with because often. When I then sit down and look at everything, I look and I say, oh, it looks like the ER doctor agreed with everything that I recommended. Fine. And then I talk to the owner and it turns out the owner's not in any way upset. And then I'm like, okay, 
what in the hell? You know, like, and then when you trace it back to the source, the person that actually took the phone call mentioned it to one person and they mentioned it to another person and they mentioned it to another person and then they mentioned it to five people and told five different versions. And so by the time and then it gets back to me when I'm walking the door and get blindsided with this thing, it's like turned into some huge deal that didn't have to be a huge deal, you know? So I don't have anything helpful to add, just that it makes me irritated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that the the personality types is like they want to be the first one to tell the doctor about the juicy with details yeah. and it's like yeah and i'm like i what <laughs> maybe it's just me but i don't care about juicy gossip or details in fact the like the most minimal interaction that i can have <laughs> mm-hmm. especially first thing in the morning that's perfect for me like i don't i don't want to be related any gossip don't care did someone get arrested over the weekend maybe if I'm in management, I need to know. But if I'm not, then that's not my business. You know, like if I, whatever's, whoever's husband got a DUI or whatever, this person's child failed the course. Like I, number one, super don't care. You know, like I super don't care at all. And number two, aren't you, aren't you supposed to be working? Mm-hmm. Like, like let's, mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. those are Probably too much information, it, but how, so how can we get people back on track? Yeah, that's a good question. More work? Are these people not uh, not busy enough? <laughs> I guess not. I guess well, not. Give them uh, give them some tasks. There's always something to clean in a hospital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes one of the things that I wonder is um, people that that kind of perpetually gossip is maybe work is the main social interaction that they get every day. Sure. Maybe they're you know maybe they're a single parent. Maybe they don't have like adult time. So their home life is kids only and at work is the only adult socialization time that they get. Or um sure. I don't know, maybe they maybe they learned to communicate that way and like kind of they don't know how to start a conversation other than to relate some story that they heard about something to kind of like get the flow going. I don't know. Those That's just me spitballing. Yeah. But uh, I feel like sometimes those people want to, it's like they're looking for your approval. Cause I guess there's some people that reward that like, Oh, you're the first person that brought me this juicy information. Please tell me more. But if you run up against somebody that's more like, uh, just tell me what's going on. Give me the facts and let me move on. Kind of like more like Dr. G is. They may take that almost like, you know, a personal affront or something. But if they've had that sort of behavior rewarded by other people, they're going to continue doing it. Yeah, it's um, attention seeking. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah, for sure. They're attention seeking. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, if you just that's how you handle those people, like um, on an individual level, if you can kind of get especially like some leads or some veterinarians to to help uh, not react to that stuff, then you can usually kind of shut them down. Also, if it gets, if it's starting to be very um, disruptive, you can certainly talk to that employee and point out how it's affecting the workflow and give them a chance. For sure. Yeah. All about giving people a chance. So, you know, you never know what's going on with them, that employee, and just trying to show them, you know, other people's realities and how other people perceive them, I think um, goes a long way. Because, you know, if you don't tell them that they're doing something wrong, they can't fix it. So I think it's so important to be honest with them and and straightforward when you're starting to have an issue. Well, I think those are some good examples. And I do just want to kind of say for a minute that 
in talking about these different groups of problem employees, I mean, I fall in, have fallen into some of these categories at different times in my life and probably will make mistakes in the future, but it's not our intention to um, simply label these behaviors and walk away because that's not helpful. Um, we want to be really cautious in our labeling that we don't just leave it there, that we actually use that label to then decide how best can we actually manage the situation. Um, so, Christine, in general, how would you go about resolving some of these types of issues that we've been talking about? I know we kind of hit on some things as we went, but as far as resolving interpersonal conflict in general, what what do you think the key aspects are? Ideally, it's preventing it. So some of these things can be prevented in the hiring process. Developing a positive culture is really important. And then bringing in the right people into that positive culture um, can help prevent a lot of these um, behavior issues, a lot of these team teamwork issues. After that, it's dealing with them as they come up right away. You know, you don't want to let these problems continue continue on. So if you have staff that are bringing you problems, go ahead and deal with it, you know, right away and be direct about it. I think that sets a good example for those other employees too. How important is it as a manager to have the uh, kind of the backing of the of the top boss there? How, how important is it to know that how you handle a situation is going to be supported? Well, it's super important. And, you know, you hit on the topic earlier about, you know, if you've got a boss that's kind of displaying some bad behavior that your team is going to model that. So, Definitely um, having the tone set at the top is super important. So if you have a good working relationship with your owner, um, you guys can work as a team to to address issues. A lot of times the owner is in different spots of the, the clinic. They, they're seeing different things than you are, um, and they can, they can help address issues too. So for sure, um, owners empower their managers and their, their leads. They're also the ones that ultimately empower every employee there to do their jobs and to, um, you know, take the initiative to handle difficult situations. Um, Sometimes people just don't feel like they've got the right to do that with each other or with Mm -hmm. clients. How do you build the type of culture that you want in a practice? What is practice culture? Like the vibe? Yeah, I was going to say the feel of the clinic. Um, and it's based on your core values. You know, veterinarians, uh, you know, you should have some core values that you have. And everybody personally has some, too, that you can bring to the table. But, um, you know, it takes some planning. You want to, you know, have a vision of what your your clinic is. One, it should be profitable, right? Yeah. And then build a strategy around that of how to get there. So, yeah, it definitely takes some planning and um, some thought that goes into that. Say you're maybe you have a practice. You know, your core values are... Things like um, traditionalism and providing low-cost services to your community that might be in a lower socioeconomic area. Say those are your core values. Um, It seems like what you're saying is if we then interview, um, um, say, a veterinarian who wants to come in and bring in a lot of really expensive, fancy things who is really interested in doing tons of new stuff, then even if the owner veterinarian is a great vet and the new veterinarian is a great vet, that that's maybe not the best um, hiring situation. No, that employee is not going to be very happy 
at yeah <laughs> at the limited service <laughs> clinic, right? right? So, uh, you know, one thing I I talk about too a lot is managing expectations. So that's explaining, you know, what this practice is, what our mission is, what our goals are, what types of services we want to provide, and then definitely, you know hiring people that will be a good fit for that. And you have to tell them, you know, in the hiring process, the good and the bad, um, so that they, they're, you know, and not, and focus on the good, of course, but manage their expectations. These are the challenges that our clinic faces. Um, if you're the employees that you hire understand that, okay, this is a great clinic. They do great work here, but these are some challenges that I might encounter. Then you have a, much greater likelihood of keeping them long term. Mm-hmm. And so then it seems like it'd be very important then that we establish what those values are, like write them down. Yeah. Write them down and and actually like some of the 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 best managed the well managed practices, they mm-hmm. refer to those like on a daily basis. They make sure that oh. um, you know, that's a, their core values and missions are every part like when if they're making a decision you want to ask yourself does this fit what our core values are what our mission is and at every decision and so then if the owner veterinarian or the you know the the board or you know the powers that be actually have different motivations than those core values that are listed then it's possible that their that their lower level management and staff might be making choices that they disagree with and that could create conflict on on either side. Absolutely. That's why it has okay. to come from the top. It's the tone at the top. And, um, you know, if you don't have your management on board with what your core values are, or if they've changed and you don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> right. Secret change in core values. Yeah. Then you're going to definitely run into some conflicts there. I think that's very interesting because I have literally never been to a job interview as a veterinarian where they've mentioned anything about what their core values are yeah not one time yeah because most people most places do not put focus on that and that's why that's why i think that we have some chaos it's trickle down chaos you know and those practices are not well managed you know hearing you say that it makes me say like gosh looking back some of the major conflicts and stress that i've had in veterinary positions has been when it comes down to it that my goals were completely different from the people who I was working for. Yeah. And that does that no work. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. That's not going to work. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to think about. Now, I've worked at places where they've, a management has, you know, had a clear mission and, um, and it's reiterated, you know, on a regular basis. And so it makes it so everybody knows what to expect. Everybody feels valued. Um, and, you know, if, if you do something and you're reprimanded for it, it's not a huge surprise because you know that what you did wasn't in line with their core values. So it, hmm. it really makes for just a smoother running business and happier employees. You know, if you know what to expect, if you know what, what your goals are every day that you come in, that's a pretty good feeling. Yeah. And it makes it is makes you feel like you belong to the team too, to the yeah. Makes you mm-hmm. have a stake in the business. JJ, as a as a support staff member, what sort of complaint do you see the most often, or what do you think is the the most frequent sort of issue that staff members bring to you? Um, a couple of things. Uh, I mean, there's obviously things that management has to keep to themselves. 
But say if they're changing policies or if they're coming up with some sort of new protocol or any change like that, I think it's important to encourage other staff members to participate in some of those. So, I mean, if you have someone who's not, you know, always directly involved with the the technical staff and they want to make a change, but the technical staff feels like that change may not be the best for what they want to accomplish, I think it's important to take in their opinion into consideration. Um, and that does not happen a lot at all. There's only been one place I've ever worked where that was the case. And it was just like a shining heavenly moment of somebody gives a crap about what I have to say. And it was just awesome and nice. So that's one thing. Um, you know, leaving your employees in the dark and springing something on them, just like, okay, it's just going to be trial by fire. We're just going to implement this new thing today and, you know, we'll see how it goes. All that does is create a lot of unnecessary stress. And um, it also makes me think anyway it, it, that management may not have an idea of what they're doing. It's like they're just kind of, oh, well, we just had this idea today. Do it. And there's no like thought process on how to make it work. Um, <laughs> and, and that happens Sorry. more often than not. <laughs> yeah, was, the reason I was laughing was I was like, uh, in my experience, you'd be surprised how often yeah. it is a snap decision. Uh-huh. We should probably get away from that. Yeah, it it it, it definitely causes some stress, you know, throughout the rest of the staff because they're just like, OK, you want us to do this thing. How do we go about doing it? Oh, I don't know. Just do it. And I'm like, so there again, there's that absence of. A little bit of leadership so that's where you have a select few come in i'm like i guess we'll try it this way and then it's like wait that's not working and they're like well why didn't you think about this before now i mean you're not gonna be able to think of everything but you can troubleshoot it somewhat um so that's one thing uh the other thing is um say if you have a it could be an employee that fits any of those um previous things we've discussed or um, just someone who, as in general, is just not pulling their weight or um, making mistakes enough to where it's almost like, okay, some things are, are being done deliberately here or just they don't care. And it gets brought up to management repeatedly by multiple people. And it's still like, well, you know, your concerns are not really important or valid. We're not going to do anything about it. That will kill some morale like nothing else. They're just like, okay, I'm busting my ass. And this person over here is like making the same amount of money I am, or in some cases more, and not doing near the work. And, you know, everyone notices it. It's brought up and it's just like, well, deal with it. Um, and they're like, well, why am I busting my ass? Why, why would I continue to work as hard as I am? When I'm not getting any sort of benefit or reward or anything for it, whereas you have someone else who's doing way less and, I mean, you're getting pretty much the same thing, it gets really frustrating for the staff. So it sounds like what you're saying is that oftentimes employees will bring an issue to management and then feel that it's never actually been addressed. Mm Mm-hmm. Christine, how can management avoid that sort of perception without creating a bigger problem? Yeah, I think it comes down to open communication. So a lot of what I heard, JJ, um, with the few examples that you went through, 
um, the common theme, I think, was communication. So mm-hmm. management has got to be open with their with their staff. You know, their their team is so valuable, and you want to come across as fair and um, respectful. And if you're not communicating them, and you're just um, you know dropping things on them on a daily basis, like new things, and not warning them, then you know people. That's like. <laughs> It's like getting hit, you know, hit in the head every day mm-hmm. with something new and it's it's yes. kind of an attack and it it can wear you down. So um I definitely understand that that frustration. Um I've definitely been in those shoes too, you know, with um working with an employee that's not pulling their weight and doesn't seem like management's doing anything about it. Sometimes they're not and they really need to listen to their their valuable their valued employees. So if you have um, top t- top-notch employees that are coming to you and they're frustrated. You need to do something about that. You know, you want to keep those guys and let let the underperformers go. Um, that's one thing that you know I think is really tough for owner veterinarians to do is just is to fire people. <laughs> and you you can't you can't <laughs> be afraid to fire people. Just you know some some of them fire the wrong people for you know no reason no good reason um and some people just like to they they don't like change so they hired this person they don't want to admit that they made a mistake and um they don't want to fire them um but that's what we do you know we're all human we make mistakes and this one didn't work out the hiring process let me tell you I mean, it's, it's not, it's not pretty. It's really, really hard to ask the right questions, to discern the type of, exactly the type of employee you're getting. So, um, you know, managers need to be not afraid to, to let those poor performers go. How expensive is it to fire an employee, Christine? Oh, that's a good question. Is it an inherently expensive thing that we're proposing? If we let go a problem employee, is it, is it really super it is expensive in that, okay. you know, there's costs associated with the hiring process, the the ad that you place, um, your management time, the time to train them up. You know, there's definitely costs. It's, it is cheaper to, um, to maintain those employees, um, but not the poor performers. They're going to cost you more in the long run. Um, but definitely if you get... You want to keep your turnover low. So if you've got good performing, you know, employees, you want to try and keep those guys. Um, you want to try and keep them happy in the long term. As managers and owners, should we be fearful of firing an employee and then having to worry about them collecting unemployment? Or how worried should we be about that sort of thing? Um, I'm not super worried about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, some people latch onto that as a thing but they don't see the overall cost, I think. So yeah. it's it's still going to be cheaper to have that poor performing employee on unemployment for a few weeks than to keep them and have them, you know, be toxic to your team and cost you your good performers. So that's that's my view on it. I, I think it's um, just overall better to let those guys go. Most employers are more worried about getting sued for something for wrongful... Yeah right? For wrongful dismissal, which it's not hard to keep good documentation is the thing. It doesn't right. take the very long. You keep good documentation and you're, you're going to be fine. In, in my brain, it just seemed it was a little more simple, but it just never seems like that happens. It just seems more like, okay, we'll have a talk. We'll talk to them. We'll have to wait until this happens and this happens before we do it. 
And then all those things never seem to align. And then it just was let go. And then it's like that person is like, oh, well, I didn't get in trouble. So I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. And obviously, I'm not going to get in trouble for it. And then that's where everybody starts getting really frustrated. I agree. Just get rid of them. (laughs) If you're working for an owner who does have fears about firing people. Right. Then you have conflicting things there and the manager's hands are sort of tied. They can't really do anything without the owner's approval. Right. You know, it's not fun. No, there's definitely a couple things that work there is, um, you know, having the owner on board, trusting the the manager to make the right decision if they don't want to be involved with it. Um, You know, sometimes that's the way to go is just the manager or the owner just needs to let the manager handle it and not get involved. Um, but most of them still want to get involved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Time delegating, right? <laughs> yep. Yes. Veterinarians are control freaks. I'm yes. here to tell you. I am the biggest one. Yeah. Technicians are too. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing is having like a good employee handbook. So again, like goes with culture and, you know, expectations and, you know, having everything laid out in a handbook and having it talked about on a regular basis to keep employees informed you know, that, that stuff goes a long way. And then the firing process is not that hard. Mm. <laughs> it's really not. Yeah. <laughs> so if you had an employee that you were planning on firing and they say, well, I quit. So which, which category do you put them in? Do you say, well, you quit so I don't have to mark you as fired? That's or absolutely right. Okay. Yes. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah, that's like a from a management perspective. If you're having that conversation, then they're like, "You can't fire me. I quit." It's actually like, "Thank you. I understand your decision. Here's your stuff." But secretly, you're like, "Oh yeah, what the fuck? like." I think it's hilarious that people kind of perceive that to be some sort of slight when it's like, "I don't think that you're well informed." Yeah. I just, I almost want to be like. Psh, psh, <laughs> don't just say you just shot yourself in the foot. Yeah, just did us. Like I don't. We're. I'm just firing you. I don't wish you ill. Like, but you probably should have <laughs> thought a, a little bit about that for a second. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, unfortunately, we're gonna have to go ahead and wrap up our episode there. But we'll definitely revisit some of these topics. And Christine, we super appreciate you being on the podcast. Yes. And We will definitely have you back for additional super juicy episodes. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Yay, Christine. Yay. And to all of our listeners, thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.